And hello, hello, and welcome once again to a Beatles program, a weekly show that we call Things We Said Today. This is a program in which we focus on what's happening in the news with the Beatles. I'm Ken Michaels, one of the co-hosts of the show, and some of you know me for another program that I host, which is called Every Little Thing on the Beatles. And I'm being joined by my co-host, the man who writes for Beatles Examiner, that being Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone. On today's show, we have another special guest with us on the phone. His name is Dave Morell, and he's known for being a record promo guy for many years for a lot of different record companies, and also for being a Beatles collector of the highest extreme, I would say. And I've known Dave for quite a while. In fact, before we uh, welcome him to the show, I, I must tell everybody, and I think, Steve, you don't even know this, but when I first got my start in radio coming out of college, Dave actually helped me to get my first real job on the radio, which was to do my Beatles show on WDHA in New Jersey, where it ran for 10 years. And Dave actually helped me to get on the air there. So I say thank you, first of all, to Dave, and I welcome you to our show. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be on the air with you today. Thanks for having me. Dave has a new book out. It's called Horse Doggin', and he talks about his life. This is the very beginning of his career in the record business. And probably the one story that he might be most famous for with Beatle fans is how he got to meet John and give him a bootleg recording. But um, before we talk about that, I just thought I'd ask you the very basic question of how you first became a Beatle fan. Was it through the Ed Sullivan show? How did that all start for you? Very interesting. Everybody seems to talk about the time they first saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, and it changed their lives, and I'm certainly one of them. But it was this year, I noticed that, looking back at the playlist of the radio stations, that the record came on right before Christmas at WABC and WMCA, and by the time January came along, it was number one. Mm -hmm. So that impact of those six weeks prior to the show really had an impact on me, but I cannot recall the first time I heard it. I knew I'd been bitten by the beetle bug, and uh, all my friends felt the same way, that energy and that excitement of hearing it on the radio and talking about it. And I think the first time I saw a photograph was uh, they had Beatles Around the World magazine in a 5 and 10 cent store in Kearney. And I, I really wanted that magazine. I could see what they looked like on stage holding their guitars and, and the big audiences and the people waving on uh, at the airports. So I was starting to get that beetle bug feeling. And then, of course, seeing him live on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, knocked me down. Hmm. What did you think the first time you heard I Want to Hold Your Hand? It was something that still to this day when I dropped the needle on that record, there's nothing like it. No, no artist has ever been able to cover that song uh, in any way that's close to the original of that, that record. And when I think back on that record that came out of a small six-volt radio and the energy that I felt then to, the, to today's world in a CD, headphones, you know, all cleaned up, I still feel the same way. The, the energy is, is overwhelming. It was truly original, uh, clever, different, uh, and it caught me. Hmm. Dave, I lived in the New York area for a while, not in 64, but later, so I'm aware of... I, I I was, you know, very uh, aware of the the rivalry among the radio stations WABC, WMCA, WINS, 
what was that like for you? I mean, it was a, I mean, it was a one of the hottest markets as far as the Beatles were concerned. It was interesting. I was a dial flipper because I think that ABC might have gone into the news at five to the hour, and then MCA would hit it at the top of the hour, or I might have that reversed. And so I was always able to, to hang onto the music. I never liked when the DJs talked over the songs. And uh, at the time it was happening, you know, I didn't sort of hone in on who had the record first because I guess back in those days they tape recorded it off the other station. It was only, you know, when Rick Squaw got hip to the fact that they better put an exclusive WABC recording in the middle of the song so the uh, competition wouldn't have that. But when I look back now, historically speaking, it's so phenomenal to think that every Beatle record to us was a hit. So growing up in New York, Steve, as you mentioned, in the area, hearing those stations, we all thought as kids that we were hearing, you know, the best music first. We would miss nothing. But of course, we learned later on in life that the, the Beatles were such a fluke that a lot of those artists weren't automatics as, as life went on. You know, the Animals, the Dave Clark Five, they got to a point mm-hmm. where we weren't the first to, to hear those records. So, uh, you know, also, Rick Sklar, who many people don't know, was the programming genius behind WABC, the powerhouse radio station, 50,000 watts that you could hear uh, to Florida and over to Chicago, was an ABC corporate genius. And so he really knew how to give kids the bait to listen to WABC. He had Cousin Brucey wound up. He had Scotso wound up. I'll tell you a wonderful story I'd love to share. In my professional career as a promotion man, one day I had a marvelous moment with Rick Sklar. He gave me, but at the time he was playing, me a reel-to-reel tape. And you and he said, Dave, listen to how I had to pump these guys up. And he'd be saying, WABC, home of the Beatles. And then Scott Meany would go, WABC, home of the Beatles. And, you know, Rick was prompting him. So all of that energy just played into the whole phenomena for all of us. And, uh... May I say one other thing? One of my favorite stories was uh, when they stole Ringo's little uh, medal around his neck. Mm -hmm. And uh, how Cousin Brucey, you know, was crying on the air, like, you know, faking, crying. Not faking, but pretending. He was so upset he had to get it back again. Well, you know, Derek Taylor wrote a book called 50 Years Adrift. Right. And in that book, he went head over heels with his clever writing about that incident of Cousin Brucey crying to get it back. And he had me on the floor laughing with the way he writes. So I found the tape of Cousin Brucey crying to get the, get the pin off him and sent it to Derek Taylor. And he cracked up. So uh, going back to the big answer, growing up in New York City and being part of the Beatle phenomena is what, is what brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium with 55,600 people. That's what New York did. They lit the Beatles on fire. It was a firecracker that we all got to share and enjoy. Did Rick make up the W.A. Beatles C moniker? Was that Rick's uh, baby? I have we to know. say yes, but I don't want to take credit away from the Pam's Jingle Company in Dallas that may have thought of it. Now, okay. you, you say that um, you got to see the Beatles at Shea, at Shea in 65 and in 66. What was that experience like How- for you? How fortunate am I? The story's so phenomenal. 
In fact, I've just found some negative photographs that I took from that day, color photographs, and I've just had them done at a camera shop out here. I want to use them for a project I'm working on. But listen to this. It's 1965. It's June for me. I'm 12 years old. It's the last day of school. The summer's upon us. That's the greatest day for any boy's life to have that summer upon us. And my mother had my aunt over, and she was pouring hot tea. And a big, hot cup of tea fell on my leg. And I screamed and ripped my pants off. And the skin came off with it. And so the doctor said, don't ever pull your pants off when, you, when you know, you've got hot water on you. And I was on crutches for the first few weeks. And one day my mother said, David, will you take this checkbook and walk it down to the bank? I think you're ready to start walking with the crutch a little bit. So I was walking with the checkbook in Kearney, New Jersey, down Kearney Avenue, and I got tired and I stopped for a minute. And then I wondered, what is a checkbook? What's in a checkbook besides checks? And I saw that you write down what the checks are for. And I saw it. It said the Beatles tickets. And I threw the crutch up. <laughs> and I was happy. And I was going to see the Beatles. And um, the phenomena of going into a stadium with the energy packed of the Beatles about to be seen for, for me in color. For me, seeing George Harrison's Rickenbacker guitar in color meant everything to me. I didn't know what color that guitar was in a hard day's night. I thought it was brown. Hmm. So when they, when the Beatles, when they carried the Beatles gear out to the stage, the, the guitars, it was unbelievable. The crowd went nuts. And it just grew and grew and grew till your top disc jockeys were on that stage, sharing the stage together. Cousin Brucey, Scott Muni, um, everybody was up there. Then, as you can only imagine, Ed Sullivan comes out, and the place was haywire. And I, I still have the set list, which I wrote by hand. And when they did uh, Act Naturally, I couldn't hear it. And I kept saying, what is this? I must know. Please, I hope the wind will blow my way, and I'll find out what song this is. But the wind didn't blow my way. But I did see Paul move up to the microphone and sing the the end of the song, so I wrote it down like that, so I got home and could figure it out. And uh, even, even I'll wind it up by saying, historically, it states that, you know, the boys were on stage for 20-some minutes, but boy, being there, it felt like uh, hours. It just zoned in on their energy. And I think that Dizziness Lizzie at Shea Stadium says it all for the 1965 show. Now, could you, could you hear the Beatles, except for Act Naturally? Could you actually no. hear them? Because you no. they always said you couldn't hear above the uh, screen. No, you, you, you got enough to know what song it was. You got a whiff uh, of the song, which uh, actually brings me to 66 uh, show, which, uh, believe it or not, this is so easy to remember. Uh, we were in the last row uh, behind home plate in the upper deck. I mean, we were like on a jet plane. We were so far away. But what was really unusual was... An, uh, and really strange to me today was how 10,000 empty seats there were. That that was strange, and I felt it would be heartbreaking to the Beatles that they'd come out and be like, what happened, you know? That was odd, and of course, you could hear them perfectly. And I was mad that I didn't bring my tape recorder because I could have got a good tape, and also it was so weird to see all the Beatles performing yesterday. I thought that was very unusual and really unique, and I, I enjoyed that very much.
And then, of course, they had the big wide bell bottoms, the big big cuffs and the, the pinstripes, which was a, a wonderful look for them. Hmm. So in a way, there was an advantage in going in 66 because you could hear them. Yeah, yeah. Also, by looking at the both set lists, I, in my mind, I wanted to see how early in their career some of their choices would be, you know, like a twist and shout or I saw her standing there, versus the latest song. Because, of course, in 66, we were only 90 days away from Revolver. And, and leading up to the show, it's never been talked about, at least in the circles I've seen, but if you were at the 66 show, Cousin Brucey went on a bender about, let's, let's all sing Yellow Submarine, let, let the Beatles hear it down in the dressing room. Come on, we all live. And they didn't do that song, which was the big hit. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was always interested in that. And when I met John, I really wanted to hone in on, on set lists and, and bringing new material into it. And that, you know, that show has not been bootlegged. Nobody, had, nobody has a tape of that show. Oops, where do we go? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm just shaking. I'm, honestly, I'm nodding my head in, in oh, astonishment. Okay. You know, I did see some photographs online recently of the 66 show that I enjoyed looking at. Um, no, I agree with you, and um, I hope, hope someday somebody comes up with that. I still think there's some, some things out there like that that people like me and you have, and it's in a garage, and someday mm-hmm. uh, somebody will find that. So what songs do you remember from that? Because I don't even remember. Well, obviously, they probably played the regular 66 set list. Did they, is that what they did? They they played the the same set list they played? A candlestick? Is that what they did? Yes. Yes. The most okay. beautiful moment, I've got to tell you, is uh, they hit the stage and John's waving. But the moment for me was when he walked over to this box amplifier, you know, and just turned it up and then turned around, took that John Lennon stance, as he does, and, and went into rock and roll music. It was just the blaring intro you wanted them to start with. And it was there. And the other thing that really worked for me was, again, I was such a Rickenbacker guitar guy, like every kid was, uh, boys and girls. And I, and if I needed someone, that jangly Rickenbacker, that sound just filled my ears. And uh, <laughs> leading into the Beatles that year, of course, uh, was the Circle. In fact, I just found the set list for the Ronettes and the Circle who preceded the Beatles just recently, fellas. And um, when you see the Circle set list, you know, they were playing with 12 strings. So that's what my ears were catching that before the Beatles came on, the wonderful sound and that twangy, you know, jangly sound of the Rickenbacker that the Beatles had that night. Mm-hmm. Recently, I don't know if you're aware of this, Dave, but recently a bootlegger came out with, getting back to the Shea 65 uh, show, with the with stereo versions of some of the songs uh, from uh, from uh, 65. Are you aware? Have you heard this yet? Um, yes, and, and I'd love to chat with you about it. Some some thoughts, if you'd like me to chat about. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and and and, and tell me what you think. And also, um, go ahead and go ahead and, and give your thoughts. Okay. There was another question this, I was going to have. This is the knowledge I have, and I and I'll share about uh, the Shay and mm-hmm. the tapes and everything about it. Um, years and years ago, Ron came over with tons of cassettes from Shay, and. Um, he showed me in pictures of Shea Stadium how those microphones were taped with each other on the microphone stand, just in case one went out. So each tape represented a different mic. And then he had the monitor mix from the Shea Stadium soundboard. Now, what he told me, and this is all coming from Ron, feel free. I love Ron, and he, you know, he, he, this, is, this is the facts. 
he's so smart, Ron. He he told me clearly that day, the man that was in the sound booth was more important and famous than George Martin on August 15, 1965. Now, I don't know much about this guy. I don't have his name in my head right now. But look it up. He's a famous American engineer producer, and it was his job to produce and get this sound of the Beatles. And uh, when the Beatles hit the stage in 65, it was a mess. So according to Ron, there is no version of Twist and Shout. It's just redlined. And uh, so I don't know if, if anybody could have a redlined Twist and Shout besides Ron. And if it does, if anybody has it, Ron says it's redlined and you can't really hear it, which is why they've dubbed in uh, another Twist and Shout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carrying on with this. We should just mention every time you say Ron, some people may not know who you're referring to. That it's Ron Fermanac, who's the ultimate Beatles archivist. Right. Yeah, we should actually. We're talking about talking about Ron Fermanac. Uh, and, and I also want to say that uh, my book Horse Dog, and that we're here to talk about today, would not have been written without uh, Ron uh, finally saying, "Dave, open the doors, floodgates. I, I want the story out." So uh, that's why I feel very free uh, talking. So. Okay, so Ron did an incredible mix off the, off that man who I've talked about, who did the Shea Stadium actual recording. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ron prepared them for the anthology album. And the Beatles were so rushed in the end, or whoever it was responsible for anthology, that if you look at the anthology uh, record today, if you go when we hang up, uh, you'll see that they didn't even give the man credit. Uh, it says engineer produced by, and it says unknown, which is awful. And part two is the song that they did use. They squashed it into mono. So there are two wonderful stereo songs that I've got uh, of those uh, sessions that I'd love to play for you boys. Secondly, what's really interesting, uh, again, with Ron bringing this to my attention, we all love rock and roll, right? Mm -hmm. We look at Woodstock. That movie, which is so beautiful and sounds so good, that was shot in 16 millimeters. When you look at Monterey Pop Festival with Jimi Hendrix and, and, and Otis Redding, 16 millimeter. Mm. With Ed Sullivan and CBS's Money, the Beatles were shot in color in 35 millimeter. So it's a tremendous color print. So, based on that, Ron's work that I'd seen with the sound I just discussed and with the print I just discussed was unbelievable. So basically what you're saying is that cuz I've seen part of the I've seen part of the, the Shay the new Shay thing what is on that bootleg is not what Ron what Ron did. That it's a, a couple of generations away from that at least, right? The that, bootlegs that, that the, yes, the, the bootlegs that have come out on Shay, uh, I'm in sync with you guys that when you hear uh, sounds incorporated versus the Beatles, it's a major shift in sound. Mm-hmm. Um, that that edit clip of George playing the other guitar is awful. Uh, yes, it is awful. And, you know, the people who put that together defend it, but I'm not buying it. I think it's, I think the sound is all over the map. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not a righteous live Beatle record. In, in con- if you took, the, if you took the songs the Beatles are doing in context and played it as a record, it's not there at all. It's, a, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's awful. Hmm. Okay. Now, what about okay. the rest of the 65 show? You said there are two songs that Ron worked on in stereo that are beautiful. Yes. But what about the rest? You said Twist and Shout was was destroyed. 
<laughs> not destroyed, but right. But what about right. all the other songs? Uh, now here's well, here's an. I'm sorry to have stepped on you. On you there. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, but I do want to tell you a wonderful story, and, and and maybe it's out there. But but this came from Ron. He was telling me, for instance, and he showed me the he showed me a letter that he had um, from uh, Neil Aspinall to Rupert Perry to open up the gates for Ron uh, to to get this uh, material. I mean, it was really sanctioned in rubber stamp. And uh, on Act Naturally, he went to the original raw Ringo Ache, and we all know that 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 ain't there. You know, it's been... So Ron went to the Beatle master tape, the master tape, the, the Mark Lewinson stuff, you know, that high quality, no one ever hears it. And he got permission to grab that. And he dove through it, and he snuck out the vocal. I don't mean you sneaking, snuck out like I'm saying it, but snuck out the vocal of Ringo on the record and isolated that very quietly underneath poor Ringo vocal performance at Shea to make it hold up. So that was a little uh, adding to something that yeah. wasn't there. Hmm. Okay. And what about the other songs, like I just said, as far as a stereo mix? I, I took it as far as I could. You know, I think that Ron's, I think that Ron is standing by what I mentioned, the 35-millimeter print of sound that he did, But he, and then his next step was to say, let me play you two things to prove our point uh, that we were going to release on Anthology, but for some reason uh, they, they left both songs off, only went with one, and put it in mono and didn't give the guy credit. So based on those two songs, which I play for everybody when they're in my car or in my home when they come out here, hmm. um, I, I think he did a heck of a job. Can I go back to Shea 65 for a second, Dave? Sure. Um, when John rubbed his elbow across the organ, mm. um at the end of the, of the show, you said you could not hear the sound. So what did you think when you saw him doing that? That was out of this world because he was drawing such attention to himself. You know, mm -hmm. he was flailing. And uh, I, even though the film didn't capture it, I can tell you 100%, he had his leg up there, and he was holding his leg, pushing it back and forth. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and Paul was just laughing, screaming. And, and uh, so... Seeing that was was you had to be there, but um, by then it was just over the moon, you know, because they it, it, the energy was so high. It was a rocking track. We didn't know they were going to leave right after that. And as soon as Paul swirled that Hoffner bass above his head, you know, and you knew it was over, then it was just uh, that din of sound wasn't going to let up. They went down. They went down the steps. They got in a, uh, a, a station wagon and drove out. And, the third base bullpen, and it just never let up all the way out. It just stayed that way even when they were gone. Wow. Ken? Yeah, can we uh, fast forward a little bit to, to talk about how you got to be on Howard Smith's radio show? And for people who don't know who Howard was, and he just recently passed away, by the way, he interviewed so many major celebrities and musicians and did interviews with John and Yoko. I think there are five or six of them, plus George Harrison, which recently came out in a, in a CD box set. But tell the folks about Howard Smith and how you got to be on the radio show and how that led to meeting John. Sure. Love to. Howard Smith was way ahead of his time. You know, Howard Smith won an Academy Award for a motion picture, Marjo, about an evangelistic guy. He wrote for the Village Voice Scenes. Can you imagine being that guy that's in charge of New York City's village, Greenwich Village 
to put together a weekly column of the scene that's happening in art, movies, music, uh, everything going on in New York City. On top of that, a radio show. And his radio show was exotic. He'd have artists like Xavier Hollander on there, which was just like, you know, titillating for a young kid to listen to the happy hooker on a Sunday night. <laughs> and, uh, it was out of this world. And, and, and then often he would have, uh, John Lennon on. And John at the time, you know, he was at that point where he was really coming into America wanting to learn the scene. And Yoko knew Howard. So they really hit the, Greenwich Village running. Howard took them all around to the shoe stores, the record shops, um, Washington Square Park, where they saw David Peel playing. Uh, they rode bicycles around town. And I honed into this scene at, every Sunday night. And one night, Howard was having this complete freakout, unlike the show we're having, where we're talking slowly, we're letting the audience in on who we are, who we're talking about. And it wasn't like that. It was, a, it was an art-happening scene. In fact, I wanted to transcribe much of this for my book, but I didn't want to step on copyrighted material, so I left it out. And it was then, it was then that I, uh, John Lennon, after freaking out, started to pick up the telephone and see who was calling in. And I knew I had to get through. It's in my book, mm -hmm. uh, wonderfully uh, detailed. In fact, I have the tape. If you, I can send it to you guys to use on this radio broadcast, or, or I, uh, however you're broadcasting this. But I was able to get through, and John and I had this exchange that was really silly and insane. And uh, afterwards, fast-forwarding, when I contacted Howard Smith, I told him I was the guy that got through to John Lennon on the phone. And he said, Dave, I remember that call. And John remembers that call because John was being John, and I went along with it. So it set up. My relationship with Howard, and um, Howard was interested in a, in a fan's view of John Lennon, and would would say to me, "You're an interesting kid from Carney that collected this stuff and is really bent on the Beatles." You know, put put together some questions for me next time I see John. I'll I'll ask him. So he was the go-to guy if you wanted to uh, catch the Beatles scene. He was there. He was there when he took. He invited John Lennon to go to a. Frank Zappa interview, and it was that evening that they surprised Zappa and played at the Fillmore. So that was the synergy that was going on. Howard Smith was that glue to John Lennon, the village, freedom, let's hang out, and John really bought into it, and I was able to be aware of it, be sensitive to when John was on it, and to follow plans. I'll, I'll leave you with this tidbit you'll love. One day, on the radio, Howard Smith said to John Lennon, where are you living? He's down the village. How do you like it? How'd you get the place? Oh, I love it. I love it. No, one of the Love and Spoonful, the drummer, I got his place. Well, I remembered who the drummer of the Love and Spoonful was. Mm -hmm. I called up the information. I said, could you give me the address? They said, sure. They told me John Lennon's address. Ron and I went down the next week. There we were in front of John Lennon's apartment on Bank Street. Did you run, <laughs> did you run into him there? Well, I'll tell you, we did, and I'll tell you a funnier story. Look at the album uh, sometime in New York City. On the back of that album cover is a picture taken from the street of their apartment on Bank Street. But, of course, you wouldn't know that, or would I, when I, you know, if I didn't know. Hmm. And above the apartment, the word come, because it 
because it says the Statue of Liberty said, and then the next line says, come, and there's this place. So I have some photographs of the day we went there and knocked on the door with our Beatle butcher shirts, and he came to the door. He says, what's going on? We said, the album said, come, we're here. (laughs) (laughs) And he loved it. That's great. Wow. So tell the whole story about the bootleg of Yellow Matter Custard and how that led to uh, your seeing John in the studio with David Peel. I guess that was all that was all before seeing him at his apartment, right? Yes, yes. And I'll make this uh, brief. Uh, it's in, all in the book. It was very exciting. I was reading Rolling Stone magazine. Simple as that. And in the back of Rolling Stone magazine, uh, there were classified ads, and one was for the Godzilla record company in Glendale, California. I still have the uh, the mailer. I could send it to you in an email and uh, you could see it. <laughs> and on it was uh, an album called Yellow Matter Custard and it had these songs that I never heard of. I did hear of Slow Down and uh, I did hear Glad All Over by the Dave Clark Five, but it, I couldn't add anything up in my head. So uh, I bought the album that came home. You know, there was no track listing on the little vinyl. It was, it was a see-through record, I think it was red, and I put it on, and it sounded like the Beatles. And then John sang, and it was the Beatles. And I went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You know, the Beatles have broken up. I've got every record. This is impossible. What is this? this there's no way we don't know about this. And so I wrote to Howard uh, Smith on the radio, and you know what? With the, As busy as he was in his life, he called me and said that John wants to meet you. And I packed up a suitcase full of Beatles memorabilia. I brought the album and I brought it to John. And uh, we talked about it. And he, you know, we couldn't play it because they didn't have a record player or a record plan, which was sinful. Because uh, I really wanted to be able to share a story of what it was like to go through every song with him. But based on the conversation, he went right away into the fact that these were early Beatle recordings, uh, deck audition, but he didn't say it at that moment. Uh, he thought it was that, and he couldn't wait to get home and play it. And uh, after showing him all my Beatles material, he said, "What? what is it that you're missing? Now, believe it or not, fellas, on November 7th, I'm yelling that, on November 7th, 1971, John and Yoko were interviewed in the Newark Star-Ledger. And in there, the reviewer talked about the contents of John's home, which is actually an apartment, and mentioned the butcher cover. So I mentioned to John the Beatle butcher cover. And he called up his assistant, and within 30 minutes it came over. Howard Smith never saw it, didn't know any story about the Beatle Butcher cover. He wasn't a Beatles fan. So John really was entertaining and shared the whole story about the record with us. Uh, he then signed it in the big cloud two days from John Lennon, December 7, 71. I can send you a beautiful picture of it. Now, So you still, you still have it? I'll finish that in a moment, answer that question in a moment. But I want to finish by telling you fellas something okay. important. I can get you the tape of this. The next week, uh, Howard said, Dave, put some questions together. I'm going to be meeting with John and Yoko. I think this might have been the day of Beatles 72, or perhaps. They, they ran the interview that day. Anyway, he says, get some questions. So I put some questions together, like, yeah, what was it like playing a Che? Uh, how come Eric Clapton doesn't get credit on the album? Blah, 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 all this nonsense uh, to, to read to John. And before he could get the first question off, he goes, uh, Howard Smith speaking, he goes, Dave Morrell. The guy that got you that DECA thing, and John Lennon says, yeah, did he find the tapes? And Howard says, well, I don't know. I'm going to have them on tonight. I'll ask him. Oh, 
is we're, we're going to put it out. You're going to put it out? Yeah. I spoke to George on the phone about it. I, I think it's good. I think the kids would like to hear the very first Beatles album. It blew my mind, and I have the tape for you guys. Not only that, in the most recent book, The, the Letters of John Lennon by Hunter Davies, if you look up uh, December 71, there's the letter that John Lennon sent to Paul McCartney saying, here's the Decca tape. Uh, I found it. It's a bootleg. I'm looking for the other, I'm looking for the tape. And that's what launched everything, fellas. Well, so actually, he did listen to those recordings, and he still thought it was the Decca recordings. Absolutely, and vigorously defending it on the radio. Wow! That's, you that's didn't funny. try. You didn't try to convince him otherwise. Obviously, I said to him clearly that because um, the one thing I mentioned in the book, the thing that twisted my mind, not to get too excited, was when I heard uh, the Anne Margaret song. Um, I just don't understand. It sounded like the Beatles were on the radio, and the radio guy was tuning the, you know, the fine tune the Beatles in, and so I thought that was awkward, but I let it go, and um, and then of course you know it, 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 it was uh, the BBC, but it's interesting because I went back before I wrote my book, and I listened to Slow Down, and it does have a like a cold start and a cold ending, which I thought was, you know, proved the point that this. Baby was a, a studio recording that was just off a little bit, which made it so wonderful. Well, that's the thing. In those days, the fans didn't know the DECA stuff yet. It's not like we could tell by listening to it that it's DECA or BBC or whatever. This is all just new to all nope. of us. Thank you, Ken. That's absolutely right. We didn't have a, a group of people yet that uh, we could talk to each other about it. Right. Yeah, I mean, there was nobody... There was nobody. There, there were the reference books weren't available, um, and and bootlegs never. You know, bootlegs never had the most reliable information anyway. So, Dave, I wanted to ask you about train music because uh, that because uh, for people who um, don't know, you were one of the reasons why that surfaced too. Let's talk about train music and how you how that surfaced and where it came from and and also whether you think it's the Beatles. Sure. As you know, Ron Fermanac has worked on uh, the making of A Hard Day's Night. He's mm -hmm. worked on the restoration of the film. And last year, Ron came out to California to visit me and, and was with us for, for a week or so. And uh, he had a box full of goodies, and one of them that he took out was the train song. And it, he wrote on it, the train song. He said, have you heard this? And I said, no. And he said, did you, ever, did you ever think about it? I said, yeah. I never. What, what, what did it turn out to be? He says, you think it's the Beatles? I said, you know, I, I don't know. I never thought about it. So he put it on and played it full blast. And I went, wow, that is cool. Is it the Beatles? And he said, you know, I, I think it's a library thing. I, I, I think it's a library thing. But it could be. And I said, okay, that's interesting. He goes, you want a copy? I said, I'd love a copy. It's a lot of fun. I, I, I played it for everybody for, for over a year. Uh, as a matter of fact, over six months ago, I was introduced into a Beatles blog site, and they said, Welcome, Dave Morell. And the first thing I said was, Does anybody have a comment about the train song? And no one responded. None. So I never mentioned it for six months until I went on Chris's show. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll say this. Ron has some extraordinary, unreleased Beatles material. It's extraordinary. 
And his mission is not to sit on it. His mission is for all of us to enjoy it. He's working diligently on something I'm not going to talk about today, but is fantastic. With that in mind, and the secrecy that he put me under, uh, Dave, can anybody here in your house besides you? No. Can anybody see inside your house? No. You know, very secretive. So for him to just give me the train song leads me to believe that it's, it's not the Beatles. You know, I think a song from 1964 from The Hard Day's Night would have been so valuable that I don't think uh, he, he would have made light of it if, if it was The Boys. Right. He doesn't know that it's not The Boys. But I think if you flip the coin, uh, I got to go with it. It's, it's, it's not them, but when I hear it, it could be them. I'm sorry to be that vague. That's what I got. That's my thinking, too. You, you probably are aware of the latest development yesterday. That are actually um, uh, Monday, that Ringo actually commented on it. Um, Randy Lewis from the L.A. Times caught up to him at the birthday uh, celebration at Capitol Records and asked him. He said, "Is this the, is this the Beatles or not?" And Ringo, bless his heart, said, "I don't remember." <laughs> <laughs> so the mystery, the mystery, the mystery is still there. But I mean, but you know, all the experts. Basically, you know, the majority of the experts say they don't think it is. You know, a couple of them say, you well, know, you never know, you know, maybe. I know Chris Chris is crossing his fingers. I'm sure he wish he really wishes it was, although it seems like he's backed off that slightly. I still listen to it, and I, I can't completely say it isn't, but I'm, but given all the, the facts that it's not, in Mark Lewison's book, you know, nobody's ever, it, it's never come out before. Um, even though the tape box said the Beatles on it, you know, I'm kind of leaning now towards the fact that it probably isn't them, but I haven't completely dismissed it. You know, Ken, how do, how do you feel? Well, we were talking about this for the last few shows, but I, I certainly don't think that's Ringo drumming on there. It just mm-hmm. doesn't sound like his fills to me. But yet, at the same time, if you use Chris's logic, this box that had Beatles labeled on it was also, at the same time, there was another box with George Martin music on there. So why would they both right. be together, and why would one be labeled Beatles? It could have been just for the Beatles film. Right. You know, it right. could have, it could I, have been I, something I, that I, they just I, put together real quickly, and they thought that they would insert it somewhere as incidental music. I don't know. In, in my heart of hearts, I don't think it's them, but you never know. Dave, it, uh, well, when, let me before you answer, let me ask, let me ask one thing: Was there anything else on the tape besides train music in that box? That's what I'd like to clarify. The answers given that day uh, on that show were attributed to to others, but they came from my mouth. And when you're on the radio, you can trip up. Uh, actually, if you think about it, fellas, what I said was inaccurate. I had said on the radio that. You know, there was George Martin music in there, like the Ringo's theme. Uh, now, Ron was clear with me to, to show me that those three tracks have been released. Uh, there's the Ringo's theme on the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the Ringo's theme in the movie. And then there's a Ringo's theme on an album called George Martin. Ooh, I can't think of the title right now. There's a George Martin solo album, and there's right. another version. So those are the three versions. Uh, so I said it, as though those three versions were, were never heard. But 
what was in this box? Let me be very clear. You're getting the exclusive on this and a longer answer that I was unable to give. When UA was bought by EMI, they brought everything to this big warehouse and they kept the film cans together and moved the audio tapes that were connected to some of these films where the audio tapes were. And a lot of people went through this material, these collectors that do these big box sets, and they stumbled upon this. And what they found in these boxes was George Martin's music score for the movie. And there's a lot of it, more than like an hour's worth. And um, But they're just longer pieces that are in the movie because they had to start and end somewhere because scenes cut and end. So these were just the, the really drawn-out versions of all this stuff. Uh, that's never been heard, and it's beautiful. And I hope that somebody does do it someday. And it was amongst that that this train song was there uh, in this uh, music for the movie. And that's all I got, guys. That's all from one box? Two boxes. One was a bigger box with the George Martin uh, reels, and then a smaller box. I can't say if it was seven or five inches with the train song on it. So the train song was only on uh, was the only thing on that one reel. Yes. Wow. So why don't we talk just a little bit about um, the other Beatles? Because you said that you've met all four of them. What were your experiences like with the other three? I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm the luckiest man in the world because they were all really nice. They were all everything we ever dreamed of. I never felt intruding on them. They never said I got to go. They never said, don't ask me that. They were the nicest four men uh, that uh, I loved. And I loved the fact that uh, I was a fan. And when I met them, they were so respectful and giving and sharing and compassionate and loving. It was beyond compare, boys. And I say that to everybody listening to this right now, that from that day on, I got in the record business. And I spent 40 years in the record business. And I wasn't a flight attendant that walked by and gave him a coffee and said I met them. I met and worked with people for 40 years in the trenches. I was their New York guy. For them to succeed, we had to work together. And I can tell you this, nobody ever was nicer than the Beatles. Hmm. Any, very, any particular anecdotes you want to share? Say say one from Paul. Well, sure, I'd love to. In fact, I'm going to really uh, bring it out in my other volumes. Every single moment I've made, with, I've had with all of the Beatles. With Paul, I'll tell you a wonderful story, fellas. I'll make you one, make you laugh, and make uh, myself seem so silly and foolish. The first time I was ever going to meet Paul, I had the Beatle Butcher album with me. We were at Radio City Music Hall for the launch of the Press to Play album. Hmm. There were probably a hundred people invited to the lobby where tables were set up for lunch. As you felt the stir that Paul was coming, everybody was heading toward the front of Radio City to try to squeeze ahead of everybody else to meet Paul, and all the photographers were there to take pictures. I stood in the back. I was standing with Basker Menon, who was the chairman of the whole worldwide company, Hmm. and Don Zimmerman, the U.S. president of Capitol Records. Paul McCartney came out of the back and all of a sudden was standing next to me. He didn't come in the front door. And Don Zimmerman took the time and said, Paul, this is Dave Morrell, one of your biggest fans, one of our favorite employees. He loves you. And uh, Basker Menon said, yes, Paul, you're going to love working with Dave. He's our man. And Paul said, terrific. Uh, wh- wh- what do you like on the new album, Dave? 
And I said, oh, I love move over Baskar instead of move over Busker. <laughs> I was standing next to Baskar Menon. <laughs> so he looked at me like I was a nut. And then he told me what move over Busker meant and busking music in the subways. And we got off to a roaring laughter start. Hmm. Um, as Paul made the rounds, Linda uh, hung with me and with Danny Field, a dear friend of hers in New York City who was a writer. And so uh, she said, hey, let's take a walk. So me and, uh, me and Danny and uh, Linda went upstairs, and we went on the balcony of Radio City. And Linda says, oh, boy, I love it here. I, I, I remember so many wonderful times being here. How about you? And I said, yeah, I, I remember one of my favorite movies I ever saw here. It was called The Yellow Rolls Voice. I loved it. She says, I, that movie stopped. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so we laughed. And then she goes, let's go eat. You're sitting with me. So she grabbed me by the arm. We went downstairs, and there was sitting at a table, me, Linda, and Paul. And uh, Paul said, oh, man, you two, this is too much fun. Dave, what's going on with you? Tell me about yourself. What's going on? Talk to me. I said, Paul, I'm so excited. You know, I just saw in our Capital catalog, we're going to put out the Beatle Rarities album. Said, no, we're not. I just resigned. That's not coming out. I go, it's I, I said, it's, it's in the catalog. It's coming. He says, no, it's not coming. What's on it? I said, oh, well, you know, what about, like, you know, Strawberry Fields, Take 18? He goes, see, this is what I'm talking about. What do you mean, Take 18? Who picked Take 18? Who, who knows the Take 18 to cut? Maybe it's 15. Why 18? He says, do me a favor. When you go home tonight, play, play, play what we finished. That's the one, man. That's the one. Play that one. I said, okay. I said, what about songs you did that, you know, were demos for other bands? I said, I'm so lucky I got to hear uh, your, your demo of Come and Get It. I said, boy, that's terrific. It sounds just like Badfinger. He goes, that's right. I told the boys, you want to hit? Do it exactly like this. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I cracked up. He goes, what else? I said, Paul, seriously, what about songs people have never heard before of the Beatles? Never heard them. He says, name one, Dave. I go, that means a lot. He goes, he pull, now he's pulling on his throat. He goes, can't you see? He goes, rubbish, rubbish. I wouldn't want anybody to hear that. <laughs> so he was so gentle and, and charming, and that's when I pulled out the Beatle Butcher cover. And he just looked adoringly at it and said, Dave, boy, if you didn't have John's signature on this, I'd nick it off you. I haven't seen one of these in years. So he, he was so giving and loving. Uh, that, that's an example of, of a Beatle experience. That's incredible. Were you referring to the Beatles Sessions album? Were yes, you? I was. Yeah. Okay. I know that Paul has said before publicly that he didn't think much of that means a lot. He really thought that song was garbage. So <laughs> that's what Paul yeah, said. It was. It really, it really was awful. No, I don't think so. I like it a lot. It's got it's, this... A little bit of, um, it's got a ticket to ride feel to it, especially in the drumming. Mm, no, I don't, I've, it's never been one of my favorites. Uh, I've okay. Never, I've never been a big fan of that song. How but, about you, Dave? Uh, I'll tell you something. I never liked, uh, Love of the Love by the Beatles. You know, I thought that was, uh, they used to play it on the radio, and I didn't like mm -hmm. that one. But recently I heard Love of the Love, and that means a lot by, like, those mm -hmm. kind of guys that were supposed to sing it like the Matt Monroe kind of people. Uh -huh. And mm -hmm. I thought it was terrific. I said, wow, now I get it. That's what, that's, that makes sense. 
it's not a it's not a dirgy kind of a thumping along kind of a thing. It it made sense hearing uh, somebody else sing it, but I, I personally, if I had a radio show and I was on every week, I, I don't know if I'd get to that for a while. Hmm. I like I like Silla Black's version. Um, she did a good version of that. The, another song that I never and, and we're going off on songs we don't like. Um, if you got troubles, I, I, that. Oh, thank you, Bingo. That, that one really, I'm you know. Even though it came, did come out on the anthology, that one was pretty bad, and and that just goes to show they were human. I mean, you know, what can you say? <laughs> yeah, but also they were super critical of their own work too. I mean, how many songs did John put down of his own that we love? <laughs> you know. Mhm. Mhm. Anyway, so, how about how about a George story and a Ringo story? Sure, 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 sure. I'll tell you, with George. I saw George at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner, and uh, it was the night they were bringing the Beatles in. And I look to my right, and there's George Harrison, and he's about to sit down. Sitting next to him is Ringo. Walking over to the table to sit down is Bob Dylan. Moving in is Elton John. This was out of this world, man. Come on! <laughs> you know, I guzzled down two glasses of champagne and had to make a move. So uh, I went over to see George. And uh, I said, George, I'm a big fan. Um, I'm number 56 in the in the Genesis books, the publications. I've really enjoyed the work. And it's then that he was shaking my hand, but he put his other hand on the top of my hand. And it really was warm. It meant I'm not pulling away. I'm with you. I'm listening. And uh, I engaged him about his book. And you know what he said to me? He said, Dave. I've got the other one I'm working on upstairs. When this is over, if you want to come up and see it, I'd love to show it to you. I couldn't believe it. He didn't even know me, for heaven's sake. Mm. And um, that's the way he was. Um, Ringo, the same way. I have a picture with Ringo I'm going to have to send. I, I want to write about how every uh, the Beetle Butcher cover, the whole history and, and all of this, fellas. But Ringo was so kind and so nice. And... You know, Ringo considers himself one of the luckiest guys in the world. And it's so sad that we all think about him as just wanting to hear about his Beatle days because he's been so significant and so full of love and service since then. He's a wonderful guy and uh, one of the luckiest guys in the world, knows it. And um, if you catch him on a good day, it goes really well. <laughs> okay. When are the other books going to come out, Dave? I finished number two. And fellas, I'm I'm gonna t I could knock you out with a bowling ball right now. It's gonna be it's gonna be my piece de resistance. I'm <laughs> telling you, it's done. I need a little polish on it. I want to do a Kickstarter campaign because I really believe in this more than anything I've ever done in my career. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, I'm very okay. interested to hear about the promotion that went behind Beatles and Solo Beetle product. So uh, you're the perfect guy to bring on for that. <laughs> I've got all the documents, all, all the conference calls. Uh, my third book will be about all the conference calls. I want to bring everybody through real-life, real-time experiences of what it was like with the day we signed Paul um, with Spies Like Us, everything that went down for the world tour with Ron Wisner, uh, everything that was planned, who he would see each day. Uh, it was there backstage between interviews where Paul said to me, uh, you know, since I've seen you, how you doing? I said, fine, fine, fine. I said, as a matter of fact, I read you were over in Hamburg and saw Astrid, and he talked to me about Astrid and told me about the Hamburg days. 
And uh, he asked me if I had any kids, and I said, yes, I have a little boy now. And I showed him my little boy's picture. And he said, you know, you won't get this. This isn't for you, but he'll get this. And he drew this beautiful little thing uh, for my son. And uh, it was that warmth that was overwhelming. Uh, but I don't want to skip away from giving you guys a tease. <laughs> I want to share this with you. I'm going to go quick. This is what's going to happen to you boys in book two and everybody listening. Get ready how crazy this guy. John, in 19, my next book is called 1974, and I've got the whole year rolling. And in February, we read that John's working on the rock and roll album with Bill Spector in L.A., and I'm in New York. As this rolls on, this book, I get to sit, I get to work with Derek Taylor, with Paul's brother, and by the end of that day, with Ron Fermanac on board, we're sitting on John Lennon's bed in his apartment, showing him the Washington Coliseum movie, showing him the Pape News that John had never seen the Coliseum. He goes bonkers. He turns the tables on us. We're on his bed. He runs away. He says, look, do you see any gold records? No. you see my guitars? No. I carry one thing. I'm going to get it. Comes back, and he plays us a George Martin-produced Beatles song that he's singing, and he blasts us while we're on his bed, and he's standing there looking at us, screaming, laughing. The next day, if my life couldn't have gotten any better, my phone rang at my office, and it was John saying, come on over to Record Plan. I'm working on the Phil Spector tapes, and I need some of the singles you got. And I spent the day watching him record with Jimmy Iovine on the controls, and it was unbelievable, boys. That's part two teaser. Well, boy, oh boy, you have had some life. <laughs> I mean, really? uh, a, a Beatle fan's dream, really. Not to mention all the other people in the music yeah. industry, too. So, yeah, and you're also with Concord now, right? No, I've actually, I've, uh, I came out to California to begin my career here at Concord. I moved to 429 Records, and I'm also working with Lakeshore Entertainment on soundtracks. So uh, I've got my own uh, business now. And uh, I'm loving all the artists I work with. I worked with Paul Rogers, Angelique Kidjo recently. And I'm working on two big soundtracks that are coming out that I can't really talk about right now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, the the book is fantastic, and I want to highly recommend it. Where can people get it, Dave? Right now it's at Amazon.com worldwide. Okay. Dogging, 20 chapters. Uh, it's a nice summer read. perfect for you. Stick it in your pocketbook, take it on a plane, take it to the beach. Nice read. Volume two is done, needs a little polish. Volume three is going to blow the business away with the conference calls. Can't wait to share what it was really like to be inside, fellas. Of course, we got 10 years of Capitol Records we got to talk about. And um, Dave Morrell got to work with the triumvirate of tough people. Let's put that in uh, Lou Reed, Patty Smith, and an Iggy Pop. And that's a whole book. Wow. When's volume two coming When's out? The second? Volume two, I want to get out at the end of this year. It's called 1974. It's already done. Uh, leads all the way up to, uh, John at uh, Madison Square Garden. Uh, I flew to LA. I was actually, uh, on scene. It was with John, not with him as a guest. I saw John at the Rams game. I have the ticket stub for that in LA. I'll tell you the story about John in LA at the, at the football game. George played the garden. Uh, a lot to tell. A lot, lot of wonderful stories. Also, being a promotion man, I worked with Deep Purple, and I get to fly on uh, the Starship uh, jet 
uh, with them and some disc jockeys, which was, a, which was a wonderful and exciting moment to go to Newark Airport and see a jet painted deep purple and get on it, and it actually takes off. <laughs> well, Dave, this has been great. Unfortunately, we've got to wrap things up here, but uh, we can't wait to have you back again on the show. And uh, once well, again, the name of the book is called Horse Doggin, the Morell Archives, Volume 1. And uh, by all means, go out and get it. Yeah, I, I recommend. And that's M-O-R-R-E-L-L for anybody wondering how to spell his name. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great book. Uh, it's, a, it's a very quick read, but it's a, there's a lot of fun stories in there. So, Dave, so, thanks for being our guest. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Steve. I have a lot of admiration. I'm in the Admiration Fan Club uh, for your show, for Steve's writings. Uh, it's really an honor to be a guest today. Thanks for having me, fellas. Okay. Thank you. All right. This sure has been fun having Dave Morrell with us as our special guest. Again, the name of his new book is called Horse Doggin'. I'm Ken Michaels for Things We Said Today. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I'll see you next time. And this is Steve Marinucci saying thanks again to Dave Morrell for being our guest. And we will see you next time. <laughs>